Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Under Fire, Humanizing the Narrative podcast. This is the second and final installment of the Leadership Under Fire Fireside Chat series featuring retired FDNY Captain Kevin Burke and retired Lieutenant Michael Scotto. In August of 2022, LUF senior man Jim McNamara hosted a conversation with both leaders who spent several decades serving and leading in the FDNY. This conversation affords seasoned leaders the opportunity to candidly reflect on leadership lessons and human performance principles resulting from the many wins and losses they've experienced. If you haven't listened to part one, we strongly suggest you go back and listen to it as this conversation picks up from where we left off. Think of the material that, that Jason and Dan Southrank had to master. It. You know, they waited almost seven years for a for an actual examination. Mm-hmm. They finally compete now. Everyone's a college graduate. Right. The number of Ivy Leaguers we have on this job is insane. Right. I mean, you, but it's just a testament to the, the complications of this job. But in that same realm now, you become officers, right? You move to the Bronx. We're going to talk about that challenge. Talk about the challenge of leadership as relatively young firefighters transitioning to becoming officers. Well, I, I tell you what, I got promoted in uh, 1990, and I, I, I went to Brooklyn. I, it, by the way, I, I, I had like nine years, ten years on the job. I still don't understand this whole thing about a hook, you know, and, and, and you know, uh, and juice. Six, six Even though in, in that house where I was work, I got promoted out of there was They had more juice than, than anywhere. I could have went pretty much anywhere I wanted to, but I never asked. So, you know, I brand new lieutenant got assigned to the 11th Division. Uh, I hated it. I hated being a lieutenant uh, for a good eight months. Uh, I ne- I didn't get to appreciate, you know, the fine aspects of it or even the, the, the bottom line of what you're supposed to do. I still wanted to be a fireman. I loved being a fireman. That eight months, it was a transition and it was a painful transition. But every day learned, you know, I went to, I went to a lot of different houses, covered all over the 11th Division. The best thing about covering, even though I hated it, was I met new people every day. And those people had the same, uh, what's the word you would use, mission uh, that you have, you know? Uh, It transcends everything, you know? They all doing the same thing you're doing. They're all here for the same reason you're here. But you're meeting new guys every day. And and it was fantastic. You know, that part was good. I, I eventually, you know, got into a, you know, a rhythm where I understood what this leadership thing was all about, you know, and, and my, my role as a, you know, not as the fifth guy or sixth guy on the rig, but as, as the guy who needs to coordinate all this and, you know, and do all that you have to do and get them there safely, get them home safely, you know, things like that. Took me a while to, to took me a while to, uh, what would be the word, uh, to embrace that. 
that that thought, you know? Didn't it? For me, it was the, the scariest thing for me. I don't know. It was like, now I'm in charge. What if I send you left and you get killed or hurt? I sent you there. I said, I have this responsibility. Now, I could send someone to their death only because it's what was required. But that was my biggest concern. I was very nervous about that my first couple of tours. But I did set a precedent in the city, in the uh, New York City Fire Department. I was made about uh, four or five months, and you would call up for your uh, assignment. If you had, didn't have a covering a vacation spot where you'd be in a, a company for two weeks or three weeks, you'd work at different places every other tour. So I called up the division. They said, okay, you're going to rescue four tomorrow. Oh, okay. So 9 o'clock in the morning, 8.30, I show up at the firehouse, and my, my friend of mine, Freddie Lafamina, was the officer on rescue yeah, four Freddy, at the time. Freddie yeah, oh, yeah. from Coney Great Island. Guy. So he has like three runs. He's going up and down Queens Boulevard. I'm yelling. And he's waving. He's, he's giving me the finger. He keeps going up and down. Like, Come on. I'm ready to run. He just waves me off. So they finally pull back in. He goes, hey, Mike. You know, so the guy's like, who is this guy? You know, like a white front piece. He says, no, Mike, he's okay. He knows what he's doing. He's not going to do anything stupid. <laughs> Little did he know. But so we go to a job, and the guys from Rescue Handle, it was, it was a minimal job. We didn't do much. Uh, we just basically, they surveyed the idea. And some chief with like 400 years on the job goes, Rescue, what do you want to do? So ah, we're up, chief. We're good, you know, because it was out of it. So here I am, this Johnny <laughs> Lieutenant. I have 18 years on a job, but this chief had like, you know, I think, I think his bear's number was like five or something. He had some time on. So, yeah, he was on one. So we go back to us, and we leave. And the day goes fine. Nothing goes on. They do a drill, and everything was fine. Like a week later, department orders, they come out every couple of days. It says, no officer shall work in a rescue unit because Special Operations Command, SOC, wasn't created at that point in time in 97. And they shall work in, oh, this was 98 now, I guess. No officer shall work in a rescue unit with less than you know, one year in rank. And I'm like, oh, God, did I cause this? <laughs> it wasn't my fault, but they, they said that's your reason. But it was a lot of fun. And the transition was difficult because you're in the office. Like you said, you're meeting different guys every day. And when I went to the Bronx, I didn't know. I knew like one guy, my friend Bobby Lopez, who was a fireman in 18 with me. I mentioned he was a lieutenant in 62 engine in the North Bronx. Mm -hmm. He says, Mike, come to the North Bronx, Battalion 27, they're doing work up there. Okay, Bobby, I'm going to do that. I get a sign there on Saturday morning. He retires Saturday morning. I said, Bobby, if you really didn't like me that much, why didn't you send me to Staten Island? But he retired now. We're going back a long time. Um, and it was like, okay, I don't know anybody up here. And I have to make my own. I knew a couple of people here and there. And then you get to know guys as time goes on. You get more comfortable. But initially, uh, like Kevin said, the first eight months, yeah, I was miserable. I missed my guys back at work. I didn't know anybody. You sit in the kitchen. You eat. And you, you go upstairs because they have their world. You're not yeah. part of it. You're just a visitor. They're courteous. I actually got physically removed from the kitchen one time by a guy. I forget what house I was in the Bronx. <laughs> the engine goes on a run on a truck. So I start cutting up the onions. The guy goes, what are you no, doing? I said, oh, no. help out with the meal. we got to eat. Get out of our kitchen. No, no, listen, I don't mind. I cook a lot. Grab me, physically move me <laughs> from the kitchen. You're not doing this in yeah. our house. Yeah, yeah, and I was yeah, yeah, just yeah. trying to help. Yes. And yes, that's that's yes, an adjustment. Yes. You're not, you're one of the guys, but you're not one of the guys. And that Not was, unlike the guy taking the hose off the rig. Oh, God, That no. the captain wanted on the rig. Oh, he yeah, learned it. But I didn't realize that. But you chopped onions. I was chopped. I picked up the yeah. knife. I start cutting. And he comes over. Nope. So that was a change. You're not, you know, you can't do those little tests. And I had, you know, well, I had to learn. I was like, okay, how do you be an officer? And I tried to put back the memory of the guys I met and the guys that were working. Step back a little bit with the guys do their thing. I did it with an engine one time with 45 engine. When I was covering with six months. They had, at the time, called training spots. They would give an officer an assignment of six months yes. so he or she could learn how a company office a company worked. You're there a couple of weeks, you don't get involved in anything too deep. You're only there for the day, a couple of days. It was, it was a, that was a good thing. Well, I got Danny oh, Purcell mad at me. He was a fireman in uh, 45. Yeah, he got mad at everybody. And no, well, there was a little tie fire in the subway tracks on, in Boston Road by, it was two blocks from the firehouse off of uh, Tremont Avenue. 
and 41 truck was upstairs, and they said, listen, we're going to roll a rope down, just we're going to pull the line, if it's half a tie burn, and just bring us the line. So that made sense to me, what's nah, right above nah, us. Nah. So they dropped the line, and so I'm a covering officer, they don't know me, so their attitude is, who's this guy? And I'm like, this is a great way, and all of a sudden, Danny's face turns red, we're going upstairs, Lou, to, to take care of it, and I go, Okay, Dan. Thank you, Dan. And all of a sudden, I'm like, yeah, I just, I just stepped on a landmine. I just, I gave the truck the line, which is never good <laughs> for an engine guy. And I learned that when I was covering with uh, one of the guys in the engine of 45, Gus. He was a, Gus, Viet- yeah. he was a tr- tunnel rat in Vietnam. Yeah. So I was fooling around with him one night. I said, yeah, Gus, I'm Florentino in the engine tonight. He Augusto. Goes, Augusto. He goes, he goes, okay, Mike. I said, yeah. So I'm gonna give this a truck guy's detail. I'm gonna give him the nozzle. He goes, well, you can give him the nozzle, but he ain't gonna have any water. I'm like, maybe I won't give him the nozzle. I was just fooling around, but he was like, yeah, you'll learn a hard lesson. And that was just some of the things as an officer, you kind of, you not thinking, you have to kind of realize, hold on, step back, let the guys run it a little more, and you just kind of supervise. Sure, and, and your kitchen story kind of segues into the differences, the subtle differences between the different boroughs. Now, I'll set this question up for our listeners outside of New York City. The FDNY is one fire department, obviously, but in reality, it's probably six or seven different fire departments. What are the primary differences in the areas that you worked? When I was an officer in Brooklyn, when I first got promoted, you know, I worked in a lot of different, uh, the 11th division was pretty much, you know, uh, three-story buildings. Uh, You had downtown Manhattan, which was just starting to build up. That's where Metro Tech is now. But that was all vacant taxpayers at the time and stuff like that. I went to a company that I wound up getting assigned to, but I went to a company pretty early on covering 218 engine and, and all the single engines in Brooklyn. And you, you got to understand that part of Brooklyn, North Brooklyn, the very, very old part of the Brooklyn Fire Department, there's a lot of single engines. Okay, and, and what does a single engine mean? Single engine pretty much means that when you turn into a block, the truck that's coming to this fire is, didn't just come out of quarters with you, it's probably, it may be coming head to head with you. So, so the one thing in Brooklyn was there was competition to get into your own boxes. There was pride in taking your own first two boxes. But what it basically was is you had to have your head screwed on straight and you had to, you had to be quick because these single houses pretty much from the old Brooklyn Fire Department – and what they would have is they'd have a team of horses, pull a steamer, a pumper, a certain distance. And when those horses died, they built another firehouse. So you had firehouses that were like, I remember uh, 218 and 237. You would go six short blocks and 237 would be in there. You're talking about 12, 1500 feet, you know. So you had to be quick. The chauffeurs go in there. I'm Here I'm the lieutenant and stuff like that. I... We, I had a guy, Marty Keene. Uh, he used to wear a Civil War hat driving. You know, he was fr- from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. He's probably a, he was probably a Civil War vet. You, know, you could that. actually make a case that he was in the Civil War. <laughs> you know? Marty had seen all of Bushwick burn down. All right? He knew, his, he knew every hydrant, knew every corner, knew every building. And here's this Johnny Lieutenant going to tell him, hey, listen, why don't you pull in the block and we'll backstretch, you know? Knowing that 124 trucks coming in from the north, nose to nose, you know, and on those streets, you, you really couldn't pull off like you can some places on the hydrant, pull up on the sidewalk and let trucks in. A lot of times we stretch from the corner, you know, or a lot of times 
we would we'd go down the block and we'd make sure we were out of the block by the time the truck showed up. So that was a different aspect. But not it, it wasn't so much cultural as it was uh, ge- geographic of, of the houses. There's so yes. many. And we were in a place called the uh, the Truckless Triangle. Yes. Um, you know, I, I still don't know. Uh, you know, it's Myrtle, Broadway. To, I don't really know. You know, the old time is, uh, you know, uh, Chief Cleas. He, he, he knows that, you know, back and forth. He was in 108. You know, if we went to the south, we're going towards 108. If we went to the the north, we're heading towards 124. Uh, he went to the east, heading towards 112. Uh, you know, but right where in our area, we were, there was no trucks. So not only did you have to leave room for the trucks, but you also had to realize the fact that in these three-story buildings, you may show up and you may have a life hazard, you know? So that was a different thing in Brooklyn. There was a guy in 218, and his name was John Moore. He had... He, he looked like Ralph Tiso's uniform. He had so many medals, this guy in the engine, you know? And that was from the 80s, and that's from the 70s. They had people hanging out windows all the time when, when, when these guys would pull up. So just as I said, you gotta stay out of the block, you had to know enough to go in the block. And if it came to the point where you needed to make that rescue, the truck's two minutes out, you know, you had to adapt to that. So what we did with that was um, control man and the, uh, the backup man, they, they took the ladder, Control man had a radio. They had the 24-foot ladder. They put the ladder up. The nozzle man and me and the, and the officers stretched, you know, to try to have a two-prong type thing. We did that, not a lot, but we did do it, you know, uh, enough that you had to be aware of that. So that's one of those things. Brooklyn was different uh, as, far as, as far as quality of, of companies, as far as, um, you know, there's, there was no, there's no difference. There's no difference. As far as swagger, you know, as far as um, the Brooklyn Bronx thing, I mean, that's that's the same as the uh, the rivalry with the engine and truck. You do that, you do that to help your own guys get better. You know, and I I, I love it. Brooklyn, you know, Bronx Brooklyn rivalry rivalry. That's that's good. That's healthy for the job. You know, it's not uh, some sort of glaring omission or some glaring um, breach of protocols that one company does over another. I didn't see a lot of guys trying to, to go somewhere to beat somebody else out. You know, that didn't happen. It didn't happen really in the Bronx either. A couple of areas where geographically, 96 engine and 45 engine would be coming down Wheeler Avenue, you know, uh, north of 172. And that's just the way it happened. You had to be careful. You know, you had to look. Uh, Katona Park East, right? You come in, 82 engines coming up from the, the south. We can pull in, and once 45 pulls in, if 82 pulls in, they come up the wrong way. We got nose to nose, two engines, no trucks. And a narrow, narrow street. So you had to, you know, you had to work it out. And being new guys was bad because we didn't know anybody. And, the, you know, these a lot of these officers have been there for a long time. 108 truck was unbelievable. Um, great, great house. But, you know, I didn't see it as a, you know, as a chesty type thing. You know, I saw it more as these are the circumstances of the buildings you have in this area and the number of engine companies you have in this area. And like I said, we were, uh, these engine companies very close together. They were all doing 3,500 runs. They were all doing 4,000 runs. They are all doing, uh, you know, 400 OSWs. So they were doing work, you know. So I would say that the difference, I, I'm only, and I'm only limiting myself to the Bronx and pretty much the 11th Division, you know. Okay. 
Lou? Yeah, Marvel. The Village, we were, we were young guys, a lot of young guys, a lot of probies got on back then we got on. So we had full of piss and vinegar. We wanted to go to Fly's. So we would race to runs as an engine. But again, the Village is narrow streets. And on weekends, it was nights, it was crowded. Um, most companies down there, you know, tried to get in the boxes. Nobody really, like, delayed. It was, but it was a different area. It was a lot of money in certain parts of the city. You know, people had, you know, break windows. Oh, hold on a second. You can't break that store window. So it was a different mentality that the people had. When I went to Brooklyn to Flatbush, they pride themselves on getting out quick. Uh, and we had a great location on Flatbush and Rogers. If you made a left, yeah. you had Rogers was, you know, like a three-lane side street that went into Farragut, that went into Flatbush. So you had giant turning radius. If you went right, Rogers was a wide street. In the village, we had a single, it was a West 10th is a narrow street. So you have to go out, make your turn onto other wider streets, but always people going out, going to parties, going to dinner, bars, clubs. It was it was crazy down there. So that was a little bit different. But we would we would go out. Uh, with Danny Dempsey uh, used to be the un- um, Emerald Treasurer, and he was the captain chauffeur. And he would not stop the rig because the tow line we had was slow. If you stopped it, you had know, to stand on the gas pedal for a minute before it took off. So he would keep the rig rolling. And some guys would go, not getting on until you stop it. You know, he would do it for everyone. Whether it was the first two falling on for fire on 17 floors or a water leak, he had that, they had that go mentality. In fact, my last, one of my last tours working, I worked back in Brooklyn. Uh, I made a uh, mutual exchange with uh, one of the officers there so I could have one more tour back. I couldn't do 18 because it was a sock company now, and I didn't want anybody getting in trouble. But I worked there. We had a mutual, and uh, same mentality. Actually, the chauffeur that drove me, uh, John Newbout, was a probie when I was there, and he, he was in the engine, and we caught some fires together and had a lot of fun. And uh, Mark Merrill was an engine chauffeur in uh, 255, so he took the can in a truck that day. And the phone calls came in from guys historical. We had cigars. We bought lunch. It was a, it was a great day. It's just good to be back in the old neighborhood, you know, and uh, that's how it was there. But I learned when I was an 18 engine, when they first started CY detailing in the late 80s, I got sent up to 67 engine. So I took my took the train up with my gear because I, I said, oh, I'm Washington Heights. I'm not bringing my car. A couple of cops go around the corner. So I go to the guy goes, where's your car? I said, oh, I left it back in the village. I heard, you know, this Washington Heights is bad. He goes, no, come here. Let me show you something, guy. He goes, you see those guys on the phones over there? We pay phones, right? I go, yeah. Those are, the, those are the drug dealers. He goes, nobody robs in this block. That's right. That's because true. if you rob, we bring the cops around. So they can't do the deal. So nobody I said, well, nobody told me this. It wasn't in the brochure. I didn't see that one either. <laughs> no, that's true. They that's, mean, oh, yeah, the drug dealers. The Lions keep the jackals in, in I was check. UFO in 67 engine, and yeah. they, they, uh, someone stole my battery, and the drug dealers bought me a new battery. It's, it's yeah. a, you have to live, live, in this, live in the city, how it works. And then when I went to the Bronx, oh, 67 inch, I'm sorry. We have a job that night. We catch a second due job, and it's up on the corner. We're down like a block away. I'm like, shouldn't you guys be getting closer to myself? They go, all right, yeah, give it 1075. I don't even know what companies were. So I start trotting up the block. Like, I think this is, and I look, and they're walking. I'm like, what's going on? He goes, they got it. We'll be there in a minute. They can handle it initially. So and I was right. We got up there. The line was stretched. They have water on the fire. We go in. The truck's doing their thing. We back them up. Room or two, whatever it was, and was I was like, wow, this is a totally different attitude in the six borough. You know, there's six boroughs. You were saying the five boroughs. It's really six boroughs, right? Because Harlem is not part of Manhattan. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's in Manhattan, but it ain't part of it. And that's yeah. the thing that guys listen to this radio around the country go, what are you talking about, Mike? Just go to Harlem and say, you work in Manhattan? They go, no, I work in Harlem. It's a different animal. And then the Bronx was pretty much the same thing. It was get to the runs, get out as quickly as you can, obviously. Chief Pritchett was a lieutenant with us. He said, if we beat you in your first two boxes, it's your fault, not ours. And that was his attitude. And when he was the captain of the had the same mentality. And to keep that camaraderie going, you mentioned, we used to have what was called, they still have it, it's called the Engine Truck Olympics. Engine versus Truck and Olympic Games. We have it out in Breezy Point in Queens. 
And like 10, 12 events, nice. you know, one pitch softball or javelin throw. We throw a hook at disc as a hydrant cap, a relay race and basketball game. <laughs> I like that. But the hatred. I like that. Oh, a swim. Yes, Tommy. He swam one time. He was swimming too far because he was a Navy guy. We let him swim. He almost went out to sea. I was like, look where the marker is. <laughs> and uh, he swims. Anyway, the hatred between the engine truck was, it was, it was delicious because we were all on the same team. But that day it was, ah. And then go back to work, work that night with them, and was helping each other out at every turn, right? You know, it's like that old thing. The Army hates the Navy. The Navy hates the Army until they're at war. Then we're all on the same team. Sure. We go back to the firehouse. We can battle again. And that's kind of how the, the, the fire service is. There's that, you know, I guess the engine truck. Oh, we're better. You know, Timmy cut from the uh, engine. He goes, yeah, you know why the roof guy, the truck guys cut holes in the roof? I said, no, Timmy, why? He goes, you can see what the real firemen doing inside the building. I said, you mean the guy? Oh, yeah, he said that, yeah. So I said, well, who do you think got you in that building? We opened the door and went in the search, so you knew where the fire was. But we go back and forth. Uh, but, yeah, that, that was the, there wasn't that much of a difference. It was get as quick as you can um, and put the fire up. But, but practice was always important for that. Well, when you got to the Bronx, like learning how to manage personalities, like what was your style there? Oh, I'm like uh, the Seinfeld. Uh, it's, it's an officer about nothing. I just kind of, <laughs> I kind of let the guys do the thing. I I rarely stepped involved in between things. I just let uh, let things go as they were. I would train the guys. Clearly, we would train them and go over. So the training gave them the confidence in themselves and gave them the confidence in me. Like I realized what they could do once they were trained. And as a new officer, like in a lot of departments, of our departments, they know all the guys. They work with the same people. They work in the town or city they live in. We do work in the same city, but I didn't live in the Bronx ever. You know, I, I knew nothing up there. But we take the same pride in it. So the guys have to learn to trust the officer. Like, you know, where did he come from? Oh, Brooklyn. He's in a Jap runs and steal the No, that's a lot of baloney. Were there companies that may have done that? Sure. I know one that did it years ago, but it's not, it's not worth mentioning because it doesn't happen anymore. But they have to learn trust in you and your ability. So your abilities have to be fine-tuned so you know what you're doing. Like I also teach for New York State as a New York State instructor. And I find that a lot of the volley palms are by me. And this is not a put-down, but it's kind of like a kind of a maybe you should think about this. Guys can run for officer and become an officer one year in yeah, as, a, as an interior firefighter. And I'm like, gee, guys, you know what? That's Did you take these podcast. six other classes yeah, to make you podcast. know the fireman's jobs just for safety reasons for yourself and them? So that's something that for whatever reason is what it is and I'm not putting it down I just you know to me it's like yeah maybe you should have some more experience before you do this I had 18 years when I got made so when I got to the Bronx like I said nobody knew me like who is this guy out of Brooklyn we, nobody knows this guy because I didn't know anybody you had tenure yeah, 18 years was and that, nice, and but... That, it, and, that, it, and that breeds respect. But it, it right took off the time. But well, it, it took time. Like, they had to get oh, to sure. know you. Like, who is this guy? What does sure, he know? Because is the, he the, the difference know, is, if, if, you're, if, if you're a regular officer or you're a, a UFO officer, you've been there a little while, you had the ability to read the room, you know, and listen. First thing you do, the first thing you do, you don't talk, you listen. The, the um, you know, it, it's, if you're a regular guy, then you can start managing. If you're there for the day, you're just observing. You know, you're observing. It's the captain's well, and I, it's the it's the company's company. You're not going to change what they do. But it was funny. You mentioned something that just just reminded me. I actually had flashbacks oh, um, easy. about the, the 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 rate the the rapid rate of response. You know, in, in Brooklyn and in the Bronx, when you're a brand new officer, you come home with white knuckles. You know, you're 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 not going to tell this guy to slow down. It's just a, it's just human nature. You're brand new. 
you know, it, it's because well, you're responsible now. Your right. name goes on everything when you're a fireman. Well, you're yeah, but you're the officer. But even still, you're gonna you're gonna roll the dice. This guy's going to where he's going. He's a regular chauffeur, been there for years. I ain't telling him nothing. Yeah. Now, once you're there a little while, all right, then then it's almost you know you, you can you can gently, you know, it's not it's not a push, it's a nudge, you know, and and it's and everything, any kind of change in habit, it, it's better comes with 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 great explanation of why you're doing this, you know. But uh, uh, new lieutenants, white knuckles every every time you went home in the morning, you know. And now for Cap, for you, when you became a company officer, like, what would, talk to us about the differences between being a lieutenant and then the company commander. Well, there's lieutenants, there's captains, and there's company commanders. And, and you know, you that's another role that you, you know, you evolve into. You're a recovering captain. Um, you know that when you are a company commander, you're responsible for everything. New York City Fire Department, the chief's not responsible for the welfare of the men. The captain's responsible for the welfare of the men in his company. He's responsible for the building. He's responsible for everything that happens with that apparatus, everything that happens with his lieutenants. He is the ultimate responsible um, role in the fire department. Battalion chief, he manages fires. He's a tenant in a firehouse where the engine, well, 58's different because it's two different buildings. But normally, the uh, the engine captain, the company commander is is the is the landlord. So chief's a tenant. The deputy chief, he's a tenant to the captain of 48 engine, you know, seventh division. But um, you're ultimately responsible, that, and that's a big responsibility. You're responsible not only to the to the to I'm, my job is to make your job as a lieutenant easier. My job is to make the fireman's job easier. My job is to be a buffer from bullshit coming down from above. But also, I'm responsible for these guys, and I'm responsible for their, to their families for these guys, for their, for their, their well-being, their safety, you know? Um, it's, it's something that some guys, you know, some guys hate the, hate the job. They, I remember studying and being a fireman and saying, oh, company command is the worst job in the fire department, you know? And I thought it was the best job in the fire department, you know? Yeah, you, I have to second that because when I was the acting company commander, when I was a senior lieutenant, uh, the prince would go on vacation. That's right. You were the XO. The acting company XO. commander, and I would uh, make that some decisions. That was after Durante left. Uh, no, no, no. no. Durante was, uh, was, no, was a psychic. No, you were the XO. You were the All XO. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you're, the, you're ultimately responsible. And you know what? You need to, you know, you need to look in the mirror and, 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 and realize that. And... You know that means you you got to put the extra time and effort in to to you know make sure all your guys everything. I mean I'm not gonna you don't get into personal things, but you know guys having a problem. You know you're you're not only the company commander, you're like a, you're for a lot of these guys you're a role model too. So you know you can uh, you can give some fatherly advice. Uh, I'm about 45. Most of the guys are older than me, but uh, you know. You are ultimately responsible, and you need to look it in the mirror and realize that, and and never ever dishonor that responsibility that you're given, even to the point of you know jeopardizing your own career, even to the point of telling uh, you know there were a lot of a lot of you know chicken shit chiefs would come in and they'd try to you know uh, 
impose their will on the company for whatever reason. Uh, you know, there's a million instances of it. But you, you, at that point, you need to become the guy who goes to bat for the men, who goes and then starts. I mean, we used to have a, the prince knows this too. You'd have a chief come in. I remember one night, chief come in. They want they, they come they come down with a you know a buck slip or whatever the hell they called it. Uh, the rigs must are going to be washed every day by nine fifteen. You know, after roll call. I'm out with this chief at three o'clock in the morning in all hands. You know, he uh, he he takes up. He goes back to you know 48 engine. We're still there for another hour. You know, the, the 18th battalion has the fire. We're still there. We get back four four thirty. Have a couple of EMS runs. Couple of you know, it's guys are beat. You know, guys are tired. I said, guys, don't worry about it. You know, we're going to do things slowly. He comes right away, and sure enough, as soon as you do that, he shows up at 915. Uh, I'm not going to imitate him because everybody will know who he is. <laughs> but, you know, hey, Captain, why is the rig not washed? You know, and so I said, Chief, didn't I just see you a few hours? You got to go with a little humor sometimes. Didn't I just see you a few hours ago at all hands? I said, listen, Chief. I said, I took the liberty of telling the guys they don't have to do it till later. All right. Um, we had a tough night. It'll get done. My apologies. Oh, but by the way, while you're here, it's a really good idea. I got all these BB-7s up in my office. I'm having a tough time with the building department trying to get things done in the firehouse. I'm having a tough time trying to get the oil burner fixed. Hasn't been fixed since last winter. I'm trying to, and then you know what happens? Oh, well, listen, I got to go, Captain. I got to go. I got to leave, you know? There's a way to do it, you know? And I didn't know what day one. I didn't know what day, I didn't know what year one, year 15, but I knew it from the year 15 to year 20. Uh, in 23, uh, you know, that's there's ways to do things. You got to protect your guys at all costs. So that's, the captains really make the company what it is. I, you, know, you know, again, like when you were there and, and Joe Merck was there and the prince was there and he was the only captain there in 58 since I was there. Um, they make the company. They make the decision on who comes to the house the for the most part. Was better. The guy before Prince was better. Who's that? Me. No, okay. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but that's a whole other story. Forty-five was is what it is today because of these guys being there making decisions on who the offices are, which guys come. It's changed a little bit now. They don't have as much say as they used to, but that was always part of it. And all over this in New York City, anyway, the captains kind of made the decision who was going to be there, so they could pick and choose who they felt, and sometimes they were wrong, would be a better fit for the house or better for the house. Sometimes they were bad, that was the wrong decision, but most times they kept the house the way it was, kept the um, traditions alive, kept the intensity, the, the, the training, whatever it might be, and the captains ran. The lieutenants really didn't because the reason the captain picked the lieutenant, in my case it wasn't paperwork. I know Joe's going to hear that and go, yep, you're absolutely right. It was because the guys said, we like this guy, Mike. He seems to know what he's doing on the fire floor. He's good in the fire. He's a good amount of air. He's not a, you know, that, it's not a problem child. And that was why they said, you know, because Kevin had asked me to, to stay at the time I was too new and I wanted to keep bouncing around. And I felt, I said, well, the guy only knows me six months. He wants me to stay in the house. I yeah, must Mike be doing was, something right. Yeah, I don't was, know what it was. was. Yeah, but it was, but it was just the basic stuff. And they make the houses good. So any good company in, in our job, in our city, and maybe out, around the country, it's because the guy in charge makes the right decisions for the people and the personnel, and that's what keeps the company good. If you allow it to turn bad because, you know, whatever, uh, this friend, friend, that friend, and, you know, they're not vetted right, you could affect things and cause problems internally. True. You know, so. Yeah. You know, another thing, too, you know, um, like I said, I, you know, I mentioned the responsibility and everything about being a company commander, but when it comes to the company itself, the, the men make the company. Yes. The men, the men forge that uh, reputation. The men sacrifice. Everything that comes to making a good company a good company comes from the senior men 
and the men. A company commander pretty much is a custodian of that goodwill, of that reputation. Your job is to keep that going, not to, not to get in the middle of anything, you know, a little tweaking here and there, but it's the guys who make companies great. And, you know, and you need to realize that. You know, yeah. you need to look at that and say, hey, I may be responsible for everything, but I'm not responsible for what made this place great in the first place. It's my, G it's my job to keep it that way, you know, as best I can. Terrific. And speaking about 45 and 58, we'll talk about the prince now. Okay. Captain Joe Principio with his 5,000 years on the job. Yes. Explain. And he lets you know every time he nod him up. <laughs> Only kidding, Prince. Explain, especially to our listeners outside of New York, just exactly the character of this incredible man, his durability, uh, his leadership. Talk, talk to us about him. Well, uh, it, oh, yeah, you go first. Prince, uh, Joe Principio, the job is in his blood. And has been since he was a teenager. I was in 75 engine. Joe was a buff in 75 engine as a teenager. He grew up in Belmont. All right. He, now think about this. 58 truck runs into Belmont. All right. Second do. 38 and 88. All right. Joe grew up in Belmont. All right. He was a buff in 75 all through the 70s. I got pictures of him in leisure suits in the 70s as a teenager. So he knew about the job, you know, from an early age. He grew up, got, he got, gets on the job, he is, is, goes to 88 Engine, which is his local company. It's almost like a dream. It's like a dream career, you know? He, he, oh, he goes to 38 Truck. Even though he was a buff in 75, I really didn't know Joe at all until I came back uh, covering in 94. He was a lieutenant, he was a lieutenant in 75. I, I did a few tours in, in 75, which is a great thing to do as an officer. Go back to the place you were a fireman. And work with guys that you know you worked with. Uh, it, it's 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 a, it's great, and there's I got a million stories about that. But Joe, you know, I, I don't think I worked with Joe a lot when I was covering in '75 and '33. But he got promoted in I guess '88, and he went to Harlem, and he uh, Dennis Devlin, who was uh, was a member of '58 Truck. Dennis, God rest his soul. Uh, Joe was in '88, then he was in '38 Truck. Dennis is in '58. They were best friends. I think uh, Joe was in his wedding or something. Um, they knew each other. He went to 35. Uh, Dennis went to 35 as a lieutenant. Joe went to 35 as a lieutenant. You know, Dennis came to 75 as the captain. And then Joe came up as a lieutenant in, in 75 engine. You know, that, that had to be a dream for him, um, you know, to do somewhere where, where he knows. I mean, he knows the history of 75. I, I, not as well as some of the old timers, but just as well, you know. He is he is a, a walking storybook, and to do a if he had to do a podcast, it would take about it would take three or four days. It'd be like Woodstock, you know. There's so many stories, but Joe he's he's in '75 as a lieutenant, gets promoted to captain, and I didn't know this. I I knew Joe from rackets when I was a fireman in '75 and '33, Medal Day, uh, Memorial Day stuff like that. Joe was always in the pictures. He always showed up at those things. So he goes to '35 engine as lieutenant. Uh, he comes back to '75. Gets promoted to captain, goes down to 6th Division. And around that time, Mike Wineland was the captain of 58 Truck. So I'd been doing the R Group. So I, I was working all the companies. I was UFO in 48 for a while. I was uh, Salka after Salka got promoted. Uh, no, no, I was in 67. I was in 66. I used to do the R Group and relieve Salka. Salka was the captain of 48 Engine. So anyway, 
um, one of the chiefs calls me. I forget who it was. And he goes, listen, I'd like to put you in 58 truck UFO. Mike Weiland's getting promoted. So I go, okay, great. All right. So this is like, I don't know when this is. This is like 90, I don't know, 96, I guess. Um, so I go there and boy, I'm like, wow. I had been worked in the house before. I knew the, I knew some of the guys. I'm like, this is fantastic. This is great. Um, they have about six months, I guess. And uh, Eddie Alfarano, uh, you know, one of the guy from Tremont, uh, you know, East Tremont Avenue over by, uh, what is it? Um, the Neck? Yeah, Frog's the, neck. the Frog's Neck. You know, he goes, hey, Cap, hey, Cap, don't worry. We're going to get you. We're going to get you in. We're going to keep you here. You're going to get the spot. Uh, Tommy Lamachi, uh, me and him are buddies. You got it. Don't worry about it, you know. So Chief uh, D. Donato was the battalion commander. He was, you know, he said, okay, yeah, we, Kevin, we're going we're gonna to see what we could do for you and all that stuff. And, and so uh comes down. Now, th- this, was, this was never in doubt who was getting this spot. Joe was getting this spot all along. The only person that didn't know it was me and Eddie Alfarano. You know, so the order comes out. I'm, I'm in the truck. I'm very comfortable in this truck. Uh, the guys are fantastic. Uh, boy, you know, I mean, you had a group of guys. Um, unbelievable. Doug Batterberry, uh, Jimmy, you know, uh, Jimmy McKean, uh, Glenn Rohan, or Joe Patricello, Joe Drexler, all, you know, all great, great guys. So so anyway, the order comes out and Joe gets the spot. So, you know, I'm getting on a rig that night. It's probably my last tour in the company. And, you know, Big Al's on the rig and he's going, uh, I go, hey, uh, the, the order came out for the spot. He goes, uh, how'd you make out? You get it? He goes, no, no. I go, uh, he goes, oh, bull. You know, I go, he goes, that's uh, Lamachi. He was supposed to help you out. He goes, I, he goes, who got the spot? I go, Joe Principi. He goes, oh, he's a good guy. And, and, and then from the, I was out the door. I was out the door. And then I came back to 45. So me and Joe... Well, you know, we were two captains in the house for uh, I don't know how many years uh, till 2003 when I got out. Little did we know at the time that he was going to be around in the, in, in the company for 25 years. Well, yeah, Joe got on three months before me. He got on in November of 78. I got on February of 79. He got made. He was like a captain before I got promoted lieutenant. So I get promoted lieutenant in 97, right? I get up there and I'm bouncing around. I, I, meet the, I meet the guys. I'm doing the six-month training spot in 45. I, I meet Kevin and I meet the prince and all the guys. And I work with Joe. Because I was in the engine opposite. Once you're in the company, you don't work with the other officers. You work with the other guys. So that's how I got to know the guys and him. Then I bounced around a little more, and I go to get the spot. He goes, Mike, you want to come back to 58? I said, yeah, okay. I'm covering about two years or so, which is kind of the standard for a lieutenant to bounce around different parts of the city and the borough before you get a spot. And then there was a guy getting the spot who's uh, Jimmy McGowan. He had some weight. He had some huge weight. He had state weight. And I didn't get the spot. Joe goes, listen, Mike, there are many guys on this job with more weight than me. He's one of them. So the next order came out a few months later, and I got the spot. He made some phone calls. And I was first in seniority for the spot, which was good. And in fact, I was stepping on anybody. I didn't want to do that. And I got there in May of 2000. And we really didn't know all the same people. Because he was at Bronx Home. I mean, he, when he when he covered, he said he had, he had a charmed life. Like, he didn't spend more than, like, five hours in gas a year yeah. driving yeah, back and yeah. forth to the firehouses because they live around the corner from each one. Yeah. I mean, he didn't even know where Brooklyn was. He knew it was someplace <laughs> south. He thought it was a different different part of the state. It was, where's this Brooklyn place? Except for 35 Engine and the six month he covered in the 6th Division, yeah. Joe worked his whole career in what would probably won't be one square mile. Yeah, basically. You know? Which is yeah. it's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But, and which is is amazing. And but he was he was he was a is a well tempered guy, very knowledgeable guy. He was involved with the company office association with the union. He was one of the delegates, uh, the officers delegates. So he was knowledgeable about that. And I had Kevin on one side. I had Joe on the other side. Two guys doing great, showing me the ropes as learning as an officer. Even though you have a couple of years just stuff to learn. 
And Joe was always, you know, was always bragging how he's the second most popular captain in the Bronx for years, you know. And someone go, well, who's the most popular captain? And they're like, Derek Jeter. So that was easy. You know? <laughs> he had no ego problems at all. But, uh, yeah, but he can tell a story. He'll remember chapter and verse of things. You go like, you know, and uh, Chief Trainer is the commander of the 18th Battalion, now, Mike Trainer, a great guy. He's another guy with a memory like an elephant. He says, you're like, yeah, he was his brother-in-law's son's cousin. You're like, how do you remember this? I don't remember what I had for dinner two days ago. At Joe, any rate. Joe remembers, like, stories oh. and, and, and operations and characters like Keith Hernandez remembers, uh, uh, he, he came to bat in 1987. He's got that memory yeah. for uh, all that stuff. It, it is, it's, it's, it's formidable. But when they did the NYF issue us uh, yeah. last year, we both, you know, they, they did an NYF, which is a WYF with New York firefighters. And Joe was asked, actually, they asked Chief Richards, who was the uh, Richards and Chief Richards, uh, who was the chief of the department. And he said, no, I want the guy. So they called Joe because he knows everybody. I mean, you know, I, uh, Commissioner Turner, he came off of all of us, but he knew Joe, yeah. and I knew him a little bit. So, you know, he, he blamed me for ruining Joe. Uh, yeah, but no, he's, he's a good guy. He knew everybody, literally everybody on the job, for the most part, I should say. Turner, I mean. Turner, oh, yeah. Turner was a great guy. <laughs> I, lo I loved him. He was fabulous. Great fireman. Yeah. But Joe was like that. We came on a couple months apart. Then we, I got a sign there, and, you know, in 2000, for 21 years, we worked on the NYF issue. And we had so similar careers time-wise now, I, I retired at the end of November last year, and Joe just got out at the end of January this year. Uh, so, again, a three-month difference of time getting out and stuff like that. And we just worked together, and I don't think I worked with anybody. I, I, I couldn't have. I went and worked with him for 21 years straight, and he worked with me for 20 So all the people he's known, I believe, I could be wrong, and Joe will correct me, that I'm the guy he's worked with the longest of anybody in the job. The two of us, 21 years together. It's kind of rare, and both as officers in the same company. Sure. And if you ask the prince, you say, listen, yeah, we're the two senior officers on the job. I said, no, Joe, I'm like five, you're like three. Because, yeah, that chiefs and aides, we go into fires, they don't, we're the two senior guys. Of course, he was number one, so he had no problem saying that. But, uh, no, it, it was it, a lot of fun work with the prince. Uh, stories, comedy, and he left. And I'm his uh, Ed McMahon, basically. You know, he knows oh, the stories. Kenny Durante was his Ed McMahon. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Kenny's not as funny as me, you know. Kenny, another, another 75 guy. Kenny, another 75 quick, engine quick guy. Dude. Yeah, we had a picture sometime of a job we had back in early in uh, 1998. And there's four guys in me in this picture. There's a conflagration behind us, like 12, 12 stories of fire. And years later, someone gives this picture. Here's this picture. I saw you, kid. Goes, oh, thanks, man. This guy, Mike King, I think, out of 75. And I look, and Kenny Durante's in the photo. I didn't even know him. I was only up in the Bronx a couple of months, and here we have a photo. We end up being lieutenants together. And it's a small world. Our job, as big as it is with 12,000 guys, is a it's small It's a family. World. Very small. Yeah. Definitely is a family. Let's switch gears again now, guys, and, and talk about can each of you reflect on a fire that was particularly challenging, complex, where you operated under pressure and were humbled? Oh, humbled. Um... Complex fire. What's the most complex fire there, there that's ever been? You know, is is nine eleven. Um, I remember remember the Friday after that, we all went on. Uh, you know, uh, twenty four on, twenty four off. I, I don't know if it's taboo to talk about stuff like this, but you you want to talk about being humbled. We went there on Friday night, and the North Tower. You know, Jay Jonas, the Beast Stairway and stuff like that. There was like a caravan going up to the top of the North Tower, which was probably seven or eight stories high at the time. And we started in daylight. Uh, it wasn't just us. It was it was like a 
you know, like you saw the pictures, there was hundreds of guys going up and down like an anthill, you know, and it took us, guys are going up, guys are going down, and actually we're going up, we are actually, we're uh, taking stoked stretches, and we're, 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 for a few guys that they found, we're, we're bringing them down from this precipice that you'd have to be a mountain goat to get up to. There was, there was ladders, there was ropes. The guys had to help each other get up this high. You know, once we got up there, we were up there around, I don't know, two in the morning till, I don't talk about this later, two in the morning till, till sunrise. And I looked out over there. Now, this is like three days after the event. I looked out over this giant, uh, what, was, what was West Street, which is West Street, and, and how everything came down like a, a mountain, a volcano that came straight down. And the manpower and the lights at three o'clock in the morning, and I, and I, and I look around and I, I know the circumstances of what's going on. The guys in sock and, and chief uh, soccer, they're recovering a guy. And uh, I looked out over this vast expanse of, of what happened. And I can only feel tiny and humbled, humbled to think of the sacrifice that happened there, you know? But that visual of blue lights, and they had the, if you remember, they had a lot of white lights that had smoke coming through them. And it was, uh, you know, it was it was unbelievable. And there was a building across the street, had all the windows up, but it was intact, the, the, the World Financial Center. It, it, and, and there was a giant American flag that they had put on the World Financial Center. And I, I, looked, I looked out over this thing that it took us six hours to get up, just to get up there. And, and I was truly, truly humbled, you know, to, to think of what had happened. I mean, there's a couple of fires and stuff like that where things happened um, where you look back and you go, wow, you know, uh, humbling. I mean, I, I, you know, you go, you go ahead because I, I got a fire I could talk about. But, you know, let's, let's just leave it at that because nothing, nothing was more humbling than, humbling than that site, you know. Yeah, I think we realized with humor. I, I'd have to say, I mean, again, there were jobs that was like, oh my God, you know, we caught in a flashover once. I was like, wow, we, you know, we thought we were good, and this happened to us. Um, but 9/11 would be. I mean, we were on scene when the North Tower collapsed. 58 truck was down there. We had relocated the 20 truck, and what happened was we got thank the you. 20 truck after the second thank plane the hit. Is yeah, thank God. Thank right? the Lord. Thank the thank thank Willie. No, that's the urban legend. Yeah, yeah the urban right. legend is Willie. We'll get to that. I'll explain that in a second. Um, we got called out after the first tower collapse. They said, right, 58, go down as a person trapped in a building. We said, okay. So I said, guys, let's load up with the extra equipment here because guys from Ladder 20 were coming in. They're on Spring Street. They're, you know, maybe a half a mile, quarter mile from the World Trade Center. And, uh, and I used to work in 18, so I knew the area well. And my chauffeur, Willie Smith, Bill Smith, uh, he knows Lower Manhattan too. So we load up. It takes about 10 minutes for us to load up, and then we leave. We threw some guys from 20 truck on the rig. There's actually a picture of us going down Broadway. It was on the news like three days later. I got a photo of it. My daughter found it and took a picture of it for us. And we pull up, we get off the rig, and we start getting the gear. And all of a sudden, the second tower comes down. So we run and hide behind the truck. And we clear ourselves off. I climbed in the rig, I grabbed my ass, took some hits of air, I handed my SCBA out. Guys were hits. There was some civilians standing there. At any rate, Willie comes walking around the, the block, and they go, Bill, where did you go? Because the dust says, and Billy's not there. And so he goes, he goes, I ran in the building around the corner. I don't know how he got there so fast. He goes, I thought you were all dead. I said, thanks a lot, Bill. <laughs> but the urban legend is he got lost and he hit it getting there, and that's why we survived. That's the urban legend. We love it, and we're going to run with it forever. 
So we go down into the zone that day. So I told our guys, let's be careful. So one of the firefighters that was working with this guy, Jimmy Wallace, ended up going to uh, Rescue 4. He got out several years ago. Great fireman. He goes, Mike, you think we're going to die here today? And I wasn't trying to be prolific or any kind of like knowledge. I said, yeah, I think we are. Because I had seen what happened. I knew what was going on. Now the second tower collapsed. Now we're really in trouble. And I said, yeah, I think we're going to die. So as we start to walk down the block, I hear a jet. When we look up, I another jet. And it was an F-16. It was a fighter jet. So I was, okay, air cover. We have the military. See, we have air cover. So we're pretty decent. Let's just secondary devices. You know, who knew what? And it was a humbling moment. Like, you know, we're at, we're at the mercy of things we can't control, which is most of things that go on in life. But at that moment, we're like, we're helpless. And, you know, we consider ourselves, as every fire department does, the greatest fire department on the planet. And here we are. We're, you know, we've lost hundreds or thousands at the time. We thought we didn't really know exact numbers. Uh, rigs, buildings, civilians, you know, and we're just in the midst of this. We're like ants climbing this giant mountain. Like, you know, what are we going to do next? So we just started operating, functioning in small groups, trying to put together, I guess, a unified command. Uh, chief Blaitch was a Division One chief at the time. I believe he was still in Division One. He started making the command post down on West Street, so we started to function. And we ended up helping with a line into the thing, handing our other masks. Someone took my mask or, or you know, I didn't have it for the, for the whole day. And we just functioned, and we was my God, all our experience, all we know here, you know, look what we've lost. So my father at the time, in 2001, he, he was still kind of sick. He was alive. He passed away in 04. And I told him, I said, Dad, we lost over 300 guys today. He goes, what do you mean 300 guys? He couldn't fathom that number. Who could? Yeah, because 300, in one day, what, what do you mean? And he couldn't understand it. And when I, I uh, spoke to my wife later, I thought I borrowed some of my cell phone, a five had a cell phone. And I called her up. I said, yeah, I wasn't anywhere near it. We're good. We're fine. We lied. You know, to, just to give a peace of mind. But I realized how, with all our experience and knowledge, you know, one, the, the, the grace of God, we were dead. If we didn't spend that 10 minutes, and that was not a genius move at any point, we were just, God stepped in and said, do this. And I said, yeah, you know what, guys? Let's do this. And one of my chauffeurs who wasn't working, uh, Mark Wesseldine, he was a firefighter in Newburgh for a while. He said, Mike, if you would have gone without you, he goes, I wouldn't have waited. He goes, thank God I wasn't there because Bill waited. You know, everyone tried to be the right thing. And it was it was a little earth shattering. Like, my God, if we were earlier or if something else, if we were mm -hmm. 20 yards closer, you know, wherever, we were dead. God stepped in and just saved us. Can you talk a little about how 45 and 58 got through that day and then the weeks and months and years? Well, Mike, his dad was down there. Um, I, I was... I was starting my vacation, so I came in on the recall, and I walked into the quarters, and 45 was gone, and 58 was gone. And I'm like, you know, I said, we're 14 miles away. We're 14 miles away from this. And I look at the, I look at the, I, I must have looked at the teleprinter. Uh, 45 was relocated to 33 engine, all right? So, all right, I see, I see you're relocated to 20. I go, okay. I didn't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know. Who knew? Nobody knew. But the place is empty. And I just got this terrible, terrible feeling. And so I tried calling 33 engine. And nobody answers. You know, and if you think about it, um, we'll talk about this later. But, you know, these guys were there. Uh, some of our, some of the guys that were there were dead. Some of the guys that were there were sick. Um, but in the days, I didn't see 45 uh, for two days. 58 came back around 1 in the morning. Yeah. And you ordered us to the hospital. You gave me a direct order. Yeah. We said, you guys look like that. I am ordering you to go. So we went to uh, 
uh, Jacoby yeah. to get our eyes washed out because yeah. we look like ghosts, he said. And our eyes Rick came back. 58 truck came back around 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, and it had a good 12 to 18 inches of all kinds of shit and dust caked all over it. And they had come up on the highway 14 miles. You'd think a lot of that shit would have would have blown off. No, they had a ton of shit on that rig. And like I said earlier, I got there. There's nobody there. Uh, and then guys started trickling into this is earlier in the day. I mean, the recall, probably, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it might have been 1130 in the morning or something. Guys start trickling in. And then all of a sudden, a rig shows up. It's the White Plains Volunteer Fire Department with a tiller rig. Right? They back into 58's quarters, right? Then a chief's car shows up from White Plains. They go into, into 18 spot, and then 42 engine comes, and they're relocated to 45. So I'm like, okay, I'm trying to find out where my guys are, and now I got a lot of my guys showing up. You know, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? You know, and your, your, your first obligation is to your company, and you, but you do have an obligation to the, to the area too. So we, we, we developed a way where they could respond. Um, the, the officer, in the, I remember asking the, uh, the, 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 the volley chief, uh, an old guy, he said, Chief, how many, how many years have you gotten in the, in the volunteer service? He goes, oh, I got 45 years in the service. I said, well, this, this lieutenant in 42 engines has been promoted for three weeks. He's in charge. Is that, are you okay with that? And he goes, yeah, no problem. You know? So we, we, we set up a way to, that they could respond. Uh, one, of the, one of the drivers of the chief was a sergeant in the 4-8, so he knew the neighborhood. So we took care of that. And then we went out and we're heading to the division, you know, because we're, we're heading down there. We're going, we got to, we got to help. We got to do what we got to do. I got to find my guys. So we go outside and uh, we're going to the division and there was a school bus came by. So I stopped the school bus. It was empty. And I said, listen, you can you take us to Webster Avenue? The guy, we all get on the rig. We can do that. Long story short, they, uh, they send us back around three or four in the afternoon. And that was the worst thing they could have done because we're waiting around. A whole company, three quarters of a company, three quarters of two companies, and a battalion waiting around, you know, for word. And there, there, there isn't any. There's just things on the television. Finally got word, 45 engines and 33 engine. We finally got word that you guys are all right. I don't know how we got word. Did, did John Wamsley come back? Because when we were waiting around, uh, Matty Hagen's the captain of 80 engine. He was limping the whole day, and he would refuse the order. I said, you got to go to medical. I'm not going, Mike. I'm not going. And one of my guys, John Wamsley, was one of the chauffeurs. He, ended up, he was an engine guy at the time. He became a chauffeur. He couldn't see. Yeah. So he has his hand on my shoulder. and walk. I said, John, you're no good. You can't see. So we brought him to the triage center. So we lost him for the day. But he's fine. He, he came back from it. And, and Maddie obviously was fine. The other guys were all good. Um, but it was that kind of, like, devotion. We're not leaving. And John, yeah. you can't see. No, I'm not going. You have to go. I can't guide you. Like, I'm not a seeing eye dog. And that was it. But you did, yeah, nobody knew where we were. Yeah. And we had no way of contacting anyone. But somehow we found out, uh, somehow we found out later in the afternoon that, that you guys were okay and that 45 was, was, was in fact, in 33 engine. It was, it was an unbelievably chaotic day. The biggest, the biggest thing that we had to do was to function like a, a department because it was a little bit like we're going down, we're going down. And it took the yeah. chiefs of our new offices to rein ourselves in. Like, yeah. we got to get down there now. We can't wait. No, no, no. This has to be done organized. We can't just go in a bunch of pirates, even though we felt like it. And it took a day or so, two days, uh, for us to kind of you know, gather ourselves, I guess, because emotion was high. My friends are down there. I know this guy. I heard that. And to, to get us to be more job-wide, to get a, a sense of order. Everyone was still functioning as a fire department. The city, we were still functioning citywide. 
but it was like I have to get down there. So that took a couple of days to get it organized. They, then they start to get the command posts together. Things start to revel. They, they got a perimeter by the end of the first day, I believe it was. So it started to roll that way. And for us, as time went on, we did the ABC chart, ABCD. We did 24s on, and we would sit in the firehouse waiting to go down there, sometimes 12, 14 hours, 15 hours Every waiting. Okay, day. now you're going down at 2 in the morning. Yeah, it was every other day. We get off at nine, but we would stay till later hours. They keep us there. So it was a little chaotic like that, and that was for everybody. Because again, we had volunteer departments coming in, people coming, and it, it got like that. But after the first couple of days, it really sort of got a little more controlled, I would think to say, a little more organized. And that's the beauty of the job too, because you got you got to understand our whole the whole upper echelon of of, of the chiefs were murdered, they're gone, and and everything kind of came from the average fireman. The, the Johnny Lieutenant, uh, all from the, you know, like, the, what do they call that? The uh, intelligence from the ground up. Guys started realizing, kind of organizing and kind of helping the chiefs, you know, get to do what they had to do. I mean, it, it, it was, it was you know, for the chiefs too, it was something uh, they had never, ever experienced before, you know. So the guys helped. The guy, the, the, the rank and file fireman, rank and file company officer, uh, he helped. Those guys get that get get together, and plus, you think about all the guys who have special talents. Guys who are riggers, guys who are Patty Concannon brought a backhoe down there from Breezy Point. You know, a lot of uh, what's the call, what's the word? Uh, Tradesmen. They adapt. They adapted and they improvised. Yeah. You know, a lot of that happened. You know, There's like somebody. I said, I don't know if I said it earlier or not, but the, the job is a fabric. You know, and there was so much of that fabric was interwoven. Uh, with loss and guys with, came back like Steve Buscemi now I work with Steve I have yeah. to brag a little bit because one of the guys who just retired Chris Riley he's, he gave up the fire department he had 20 something years he's going to be an actor so well, he makes it I said I have two people I, that I created actors Steve and, and Chris um, but he came back and he had been around a little they bit. learned from the best but he came back oh I can act let me tell you uh, he came back and he's been an integral part of 55 Engine for many years he's always at the 911 mm -hmm. you know and he had been retired and we had seen him uh, when I was in Brooklyn, again, this is a little, little off thing, but just tell a quick story. One of those weird meetings. We're playing softball in, in, in uh, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and all of a sudden I see a couple, you know, it's in between the games, I'm a few beers and some dogs and burgers, and I look over and I see a guy playing with two kids. I'm like, oh my God, it's Steve. Now he's retired a few years, probably about 10, 11 years. I go walk home, hey, Mike, hey, Steve, blah, blah, blah. Bring your kids over. Come on over, get some dogs and some stones. I walk back over, he goes, oh, I'll get them. He goes, I ain't not on a job anymore. I said, you want to farm and you're always a farmer. Right. Come on over. So I go tell the guys. Hey, Steve Buscemi's coming over. Now, he had was just making it. He wasn't quite, hadn't done the uh, Armageddon movie, I don't believe. So George Johnson, who retired battalion chief, who was the third guy in the 9-11 with his hands on his hips. George is a great guy. Um, I, I mean, so many like celebrities and stuff around. Their fathers and brothers were firefighters in different parts of the country. And I just found that as an interesting little thing. Like, wow, he wasn't famous then. Now he is. And Chris, uh, Steve is famous too. And yet, the one connection is the fire department. Sure. Just something weird. You're always a part of this. Yeah, you never leave it. I got out um, early 2003. We had done what we had to do. We had, you know, it, we, the recovery was over. Uh, I was involved with that. You know, the, the the funerals were starting to wind down. You know, you got you got to appreciate you. I, and I got to mention this. You got to appreciate the extracurricular activity that the company, the guys, the men and women, excuse me. What they had to do, you know, they had to man the firehouse. They had the resources for the, the recovery. Plus, they were doing like five funerals a day. You know, this was an unbelievable, 
I mean, 9-11 was, was, was a, a black mark on, on American history and, and New York City, unbelievable losses. But from then on till, till I guess, July, what, the, what the, the guys who survived did to, you know, to keep the legacy going, to, to, to honor these people and to do the right thing, it, it was an extraordinary amount of, of effort and time away from their families to make sure that every family at every funeral knew that they weren't forgotten. And, and it was a hard thing to do. Actually, it got me going. I forgot the question, but... Retirement, uh, how do you feel about it? Oh, uh, no. Now, you know what? I, I, <laughs> I really, that? you know, I, I, on the phone, I'm, 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 look, I'm watching every fire in New York City. Um, you know, I listened to the... Last night, there was uh, something in... Where the hell was it? Uh, Lower Manhattan. Second alarm, two o'clock in the morning. I'm listening to it. You know, um, I, I don't feel like I really don't feel like I've ever retired. You know, anyway, you you could talk for a while. I can talk forever, but uh, retirement. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm only out since the end of November. Um, they were not the perfect circumstances to retire. I was planning on going in February anyway, or September next month when I would have aged out anyway. So my time was short, but it wasn't my time. But I, again, I I had 43, almost 43 years. I can't complain. Guys, said, you know. Some guys do 10 years, they get injured, they're out of the job. They only have a small career, a small part of what you had. So for that, I'm very grateful, and I am truly appreciative of it. My family has supported me. Um, I, I miss it every day, though. I, I miss yeah. the guys, the camaraderie. I miss yeah. going to, to work, not because of the authority. As a lieutenant, I didn't. I don't think I ever gave an yeah. order. I don't, I don't know what an order is. I've read about them. I've never really seen one. It's like Prince gave me one order twice a year, though, as long as we're speaking orders. Uh, I, when I was the ACC, when he was on vacation, uh, his order was don't change anybody's groups. Because one time I changed a couple guys' groups while he was away. He was like, what are you doing? So it was only for a couple of weeks. He had two weeks. He said, don't do that ever again. So I didn't think it was a big deal, but he said no. So that was that. And uh, he made sure he never did that. He gave me an order, never do that when he went on vacation. Uh, every, every vacation he went on. But I do miss the guys. I miss, I'll always miss them. I mean, my family's been in the fire service since the early 50s. I mean, now I'm the last one out of the fire service. I still have family in the PD uh, aspect of it. I just miss the guys. Uh, I miss going to fires. I miss going to even runs. I mean, I don't miss the water leaks at 3 in the morning. Yeah. When you say, excuse me, sir or ma'am, how long has this been leaking? Oh, for the last seven hours. So, so you felt that 3 o'clock was the best time to call for help. And it's nationwide. I've talked to firefighters around the country. And they go, yeah, we get those people. They must be related. I don't know. But I do miss that now because I can't be part of it. So when you go to the kitchen, like if I go to the fire, I'm going there tomorrow night. I'm dropping the kids off at a Yankee game. I'm going to the, the firehouse. And I'll sit around the kitchen table and tell some stories. And I'm, I'll miss what happened last week or the week before because I wasn't here. So I'll get some dribs and drabs and we'll talk. And then I'll leave. And then oh, I'm gone for, you know. They haven't recovered from your last stories. You're going you're to come back tomorrow and do it? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Okay. Give the, give the, the men, picnic was on give Monday. The men, the give the men, a, no, give the them men. six months at least to, no, to recover. Suffering. They have No, they can't. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, happens to many firefighters. A buddy of mine said it'll take about two years to get used to it. And I said, well, we'll wait and see. The bride is not yeah. that. She's, she's very gracious about it because, you know, you have to start realizing you can't go back. I said, I know that. But in the back of my mind, and this is going to sound very strange to everybody here, I never thought I'd have to retire. I never thought that day would ever come. I thought I would just keep doing this forever. That just that's I, as silly as it is, as ridiculous as it is, that's what I thought. I still teach for New York State, like I said, in for Orange County, New York, and uh, I do stuff like that on my own. On the outside, I do some teaching. I do enjoy that. That does help keep me smiling a bit. But once you leave, you're always part of it. 
but you're sort of like a little bit removed. Yeah. You're just not part of the daily stuff. And for me, that's hard. Sure. Change is not, I don't do change well. Yeah. I'm extremely fortunate when, when it comes to this. You know, it, you remember, uh, you know, when you go to, you get promoted out of a house, you go back 10 years later, you don't know anybody. You know, it's just natural. But I do know the guys in 58 truck now and 45 inch, and I'm very, very lucky because my son's in 58 truck that that I'm very lucky to to get to interact with all those guys and know those guys. It's it's been a blessing. It's been therapeutic for me, you know. So I'm still part. Uh, I still know the guys. Still part of the guys. Still miss being, you know, going out doing our thing, you know, having integrity, helping somebody. Every day, everybody that calls you, you're helping. You're the most important thing happening to that day, to them that day. Uh, I miss those. I miss those things, but. Yeah. Uh, still knowing the guys and not losing touch with the firehouse has really been um, a godsend for me. You know. And what what advice would you offer to those who are about to retire? You know, love your family, love your job. That'll never change. It'll never stop. It'll never go away. You don't end the day you retire. You know. So. I think I would say love every minute you're on the job because you never know when it's going to end. Yep. It's almost like a, a family member. Like, you know, you have an argument with your spouse and she goes out mad or you go out mad and you're pissed off. Maybe that's the last time you're going to see them. So bring it back. Realize what you have is, is, a, is a finite time in your life. Make it the best. There is no perfect career. Everyone is different. Some guys retire. The princess, I'm loving retirement. I'm having the best time of my life. Maybe he truly is. I believe him, you know. But for me, I'm having a great time. I just miss that aspect of it. I still love my family and stuff like that. I, I just miss it. Um, but the advice would be just uh, enjoy it while you got it. You don't know how long it's going to last. And one day it will be gone. And you're going to have to move on to something else or to more of this. Like, like I said, teaching yeah. or playing golf. You know, it, everyone's, in, everyone's an individual. There's, yeah. there's no one, you know, one brush that coats it all. So, Plus there's different shades of gray. You can, you can move on. I know a song like that. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's 50 shades, whatever. I, I don't know. I, I, but... Um, you can move on or you can contribute less. Not you're not there physically. You could still you can still do some things to help. Um, you know, I, I don't ask me how, don't ask me why, but if you're a little thoughtful about the whole thing, you know, you, if you continue to have the guys in your heart. Like I got you know, I got 25 guys that are probably retired from the house, so you you know, I got to reach out to those guys every once in a while, see how they're doing, how they're feeling. You know, got guys I got guys who are sick guys who had to retire, guys who can't breathe. That goes part and parcel. We lost Patty Sullivan, one of our guys. Yep. Uh, so his family needs to be taken care of. Uh, these guys in 58 and 45 right now, who never met Patty, do a wonderful job taking care of Patty and the kids. Mike, they're, they're adults, they're not kids. Yeah. But um, that family, you know, there's, there's the family that's in the firehouse and there's family that's already retired. Got to always make sure those guys we keep that keep that connection going, that network going. Uh, how's everybody? How can we help? Things like that. Very, very important. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of hard to do, but um, you know, that's even though you're retired, you're still part of the company, still part of the heritage. You're not going out the door anymore. But um, you, everyone, even everybody, can contribute. I mean, you know, but not as much as you used to. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're contributing right now by sharing your stories. It means a, it means more than you can imagine. The one thing that our job doesn't do well is we don't bring this talent back. 
right? Leadership under fire does, but the job doesn't. So I'm sitting here in about in front of about 70 years worth of experience, right? That's invaluable. So you, you never lose contact, you never lose value, and uh, we certainly enjoyed it. And gentlemen, we're going to wrap on that note. Lieutenant, thank you very much. Lieutenant Mike Scotto, Captain Kevin Burke, thank you so much. Thanks, man. Thank you very much, guys. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks. That was great. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you both. Oh, you wait, good? wait. Can I add one thing? Oh, God, no. No, no. Do you sure. mind? Can, you, can, can, can we do, are we? Listen. Like, no, no. I, I, I wrote this down. And if you don't get can you record this, please? No. Uh, whatever. Because I, I want to thank people, all right? I want to thank Jason for, for giving me the opportunity to do this. I know I said that earlier, but I wanted to make another quick uh, go right around and do that again. But I'd also, you're, I, I'd like to thank Mike Scotto. I'd like to thank Joe Murphy, Billy Donlin, Paul McKee, the Prince, and Patty Sullivan for molding the next generation of firefighters and leaders, all right, and upholding the tradition, especially teaching those guys that tradition and that competence thank you to those guys for especially uh, teaching my son ryan who's a member of 58 truck all right i'd like to thank the guys in the firehouse who are there now for keeping that tradition alive and and well and for the most respectful compassionate and meaningful 9-11 memorial uh that's held every year uh the 18th battalion uh, and this was done by the firemen. It had nothing to do with the officers. 2001, the 18th Battalion got a permit for 100th Street and Riverside Drive. And every year, they have a memorial, which is impeccably done. Uh, and it's all done by the guys in the firehouse with very little help from the outside. It's poignant. It, it's right on target. There's no politicians. There's no media invited. Uh, guys who... You know, who, like I said before, who are retired now, guys who are gone um, can go back and we can uh, reflect and honor those that, uh, you know, that died on that tragic day. Got to thank 4558 and guys who are there now for keeping that tradition alive. And I, I, I'm giving them a, a round of applause because um, it, it's it's very, very sobering and it's it's something that it fills my heart with joy joy so thank you very much to the, to the guys who were there now amen captain thank you Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.